so great to sing of our hope, isn't it? Makes those words mean something. Well, there's a general opinion that pastors only work on Sundays. And so I'm often uh, giving recommendations of what I should do in all my free time. And I'm usually given a list of books that I should read. And I've got a list so long that I think if I started today, I couldn't finish it in a lifetime. But recently, someone mentioned a book that actually piqued my interest. They heard that I enjoy reading historical biographies. So they recommended a book uh, entitled Unbroken. It's a story about a juvenile delinquent turned Olympic, hero, or Olympic champion turned uh, war hero. And his story is so amazing that if he wasn't alive to actually attest to the facts and if there weren't people who could confirm them, quite frankly, I wouldn't believe it, it was true. In fact, several times as I read this book, I had to put it down because I could not imagine any one person being able to endure all that he did. His name was Louis Zamperini, and he survived 47 days without food or water after his B-24 bomber crashed into the ocean during World War II. While in this survival raft, raft, he was attacked by sharks, Um, he was strafed by fighter jets, Uh, he was eventually rescued by the enemy and put into a, a POW camp where he endured what was brutal, sadistic torture over months and months up to almost a year. And yet somehow, against all odds, he held out hope that he would survive. And miraculously, he did. It reminds me of the point that someone once made that said, you can live 40 days without food, you can live 8 days without water, you can live 4 minutes without air, but only a few seconds without hope. Hope is what keeps us alive. And that's true for every single one of us. Now the Bible actually has a lot to say about hope. But there's an interesting uh, point that Paul makes in his letter to the Romans. And he says this, listen to it. He says, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? (laughs) There's an important point here. Let me explain what he means with the illustration. If I were to stand before you, how foolish would it be for me to say to you now, I hope I have a cookie. (laughs) Doesn't make any sense, does it? Because look what I got in my hand. Now, it's almost dinner and I know you're hungry, but... (laughs) I hope it tastes good. Doesn't make any sense. Of course it tastes good. It's a chocolate chip cookie. Hope is something that you anticipate that's not seen, that's not realized. And that's Paul's point. I should have brought some water. (laughs) But, But Paul wants us to know that to hope in something is to believe in something beyond your present reality. Something that's far greater than what you're currently experiencing. Hope is a conviction of things not yet seen. And it makes no sense to hope in something that you already have. And he wants us to know that every person is a person of hope. Because as the famous author Doshetsky once said, he said, to live without hope is to cease to live. So I'm going to assume that since you're here, 
and you're alive, then you're a person of hope. And so this morning, what I want you to consider is, what is your hope? What is it that you've placed your hope in, your expectation of things yet to come? What do you believe in? What does your heart truly long for? What is your hope? Well, that's what we're going to think through together this morning. So before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that you guide and direct the time that we have together in a way that leads us to a knowledge of the truth, that helps us understand the hope that you've promised. Give us real uh, sincere and honest hearts as we evaluate that question in our own lives and, and reveal to us if in fact there is something that, that we've placed in our hope in that, that doesn't fulfill what our hearts long for most. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see and to know what is good and right and true. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Hallelujah. Got water. We're going to be here all day. Well, as we seek to answer this question of where we find hope, let me give you three very broad categories for your consideration. I believe these categories are general enough to represent every single person in this room. In other words... Your hope will most certainly be found in one of these three places. You can decide which one. I'm not going to tell you. That's the question you need to answer for yourself. But your hope will either be found in this world, it will be found in religion, or it will be found in Jesus Christ. It's one of the three. And only one. Because as we'll see, they are mutually exclusive from one another. So let's begin with a hope that is placed in the world. Now, that particular category is actually an oxymoron, in my opinion. <laughs> because hope in this world really is no hope at all. And here's why I say that. Remember, hope is defined by believing in something that you cannot see. Think about the cookie, right? When I was holding it in my hand, it made no sense for me to say, I hope I have a cookie. There was no hoping. I had it. It was in my hands. Well, the same principle applies when we talk about worldly hope. You see, what you see in this world is what you get. And so there's no hoping in things that you can already see. There's a verse in the Bible that describes what that worldly hope looks like. It's in 1 John when he writes and says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now as we think about that passage, I want to point out something that I mentioned earlier, and that's the fact that... that when John says, anyone who loves the world does not have the love of God. In other words, they are mutually exclusive from one another, and I believe that applies to hope as well. Anyone who has hope in this world does not have hope in God. 
To accept one is to reject the other. Believing in what the world has to offer is a denial of what God promises to be true because they are totally different things. And to accept one is to reject the other. The Bible puts it this way. It says you can't serve two masters. You will either love one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. It can never be both. And that's John's point here as well. So John then goes on to describe the the qualities of this worldly hope. When he says that all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Now I want us to talk about that a little bit because I think when we hear that description, our perspective is often too narrow. We hear lust of the flesh and we automatically think, well that's, that's sexual immorality. And although that may be true, that's not all it means. In fact, when John is describing this, he's using a much more broad meaning. In fact, he uses a particular term that is intended to describe our selfish nature in general. So, the lust of the flesh is the sinful desire that we are born with. Okay? It describes that selfish nature that exists in the heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl. Just think of some of the very first words that a kid learns to say. Mine. Right? That's mine. And so what do we do as parents when our kids are being selfish and they want their stuff? We tell them, now Johnny, you need to share, right? Share your toys. You see, the point is that selfishness comes naturally. We have to learn to share. And when it comes to selfishness, there has to be an object of your desire, right? Something that you want. Something that you see with your eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. What's important to understand here is that the things that we often have this innate selfish desire for, we only value them based on their personal benefit to us. It could be another person. It could be an object like a, like a car or a house. But when I see these things, I want them because of what they do for me. And this is where pride kicks in. Because my selfish heart always convinces me that I deserve what I desire. Right? I want it. I see it. I believe that I deserve it. And so what do I do? I, I go for it. This is the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The boastful pride of life. That's a worldly hope. It's all the pleasures that this world has to offer that, that feeds our selfish appetite. Things that make us look good. Things that make us feel good. And you can consume all you want to, but you need to understand something that's really important. You will never, ever be able to satisfy your selfish appetite. It always wants more. That's why worldly hope is no hope at all. What you see is what you get. Just remember, you're holding the cookie in your hand. Have you been there? You know what that emptiness feels like? 
when you pursue something that you really want and you get it and you go, is that it? Is that all there is? Kind of leaves you wanting more. So you pursue something different. And it's like you're chasing emptiness time after time. And so I want to encourage you, if that's where you find yourself, then at least consider for yourself that maybe you've placed your hope in the wrong thing. A lot of times when people get to this place where they're discouraged because they're pursuing these things that don't fulfill, they'll often turn to religion or some form of spirituality. It's the idea that if I can't get there on my own, then I'll appeal to some higher power that will help me along the way. If bad choices have bad consequences, then surely good choices will have good consequences. And any religion that you might choose has some ideal of a moral or religious code, some description of what those good choices might look like. But religious hope is a false hope, and let me tell you why. Your selfish heart is still in control. It's just that your selfish hope has now been, uh, heart has been disguised behind piety. But in the end, you're still doing things, even if they're good and noble things, so that you feel good about yourself, so that your life is more like what you want it to be or what you think it should be. It's still all about you. Now, God is important, but only as He can help you accomplish the goals that you've set for yourself. And so if worldly hope is a pig, then religious hope is like putting lipstick on a pig. It may look prettier, but it's still a pig. The Bible also has a lot to say about religious hope. In fact, in this category, it has poster children for the religious hope. They're called Pharisees. They had religious hope down to a science. And Jesus made every attempt to expose this kind of hope as a lie. In fact, if you'll look at Matthew chapter 23 with me, this account actually occurs just days before, and in fact, you could even say hours before his crucifixion. He is addressing this crowd of people, which includes the Pharisees who ultimately were seeking to kill him. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowd and to His disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed By men. All their religious activities were corrupted by selfish motives. And then beginning in verse 13, Jesus goes on to describe what are called seven woes or or seven condemnations of religious hope. Now, we won't read all them in detail, but let me summarize them for you. He says, Jesus, Jesus condemns the Pharisees because... That religious hope promotes a life that is exclusive, it's selfish, it's manipulative, it's dishonest, it's fake, it's hypocritical, 
and it's idolatrous. Those are the seven condemnations of religious hope. Those are some strong condemnations, aren't they? Especially that last one, I, idolatrous. Now, don't religious people spend a lot of time worshiping? Isn't that what they do? How can they be idolatrous? And especially the people he's referring to, the Jews. That's, that's God's chosen people. But here's the problem. And Jesus actually addresses this and says this to them in an earlier conversation. He says, you're condemned because you have set your hope on Moses. It's an interesting statement. I want you to think about that. What specific role did Moses have? What's the point that Jesus is making? When you think about Moses, what comes to mind? Other than Charleston Heston, right? <laughs> what comes to mind? It's the law, the, the Ten Commandments, right? That, that code that, that God had given them, that, that code of conduct by which they were to live. The law. So when Jesus says that they, the Pharisees have set their hope on Moses, He's saying that they hoped in a code of conduct as a means to accomplish salvation. To merit God's favor. They believe that their salvation is found in the practice of those good deeds. And that's the deception of religious hope. And before you shrug it off as a, a thing of a past, let me describe to you what that looks like in our world today. It's found in the very common belief that, hey, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. If you just follow the, the right moral code, that, that description of, of good choices, and do your best to live accordingly, then you'll end up in the right place. And God is important. In fact, He's really important because He helps you feel good. You see, when you get in a bad place of, of distress, or you find yourself in a, a crisis or a difficult situation, He'll be there. In fact, isn't that what the Bible says? Jesus will never leave you or, or forsake you. He'll be there when you need Him. Oh, but when life is going good, we're often quite comfortable in taking care of things on our own. Oh, I'll go to church when I need to. Or at least, maybe on Easter because I should. I'll read the Bible sometimes if I think about it. I'll pray if I kind of get backed into a corner. Religious hope ultimately is a crutch that assists you on your journey to heaven. But ultimately it's your good deeds that are going to get you there. And religion is what helps you along the way. And you need to understand that is a lie. Religious hope is a false hope. Because it will not get you to heaven. Like Jesus told the Pharisees as he was describing this religious hope to them. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look real nice on the outside, but when you look inside, you're full of dead man's bones. In other words, your life may look good on the outside, but your soul is eternally dead. That's a pretty graphic description, isn't it? And so if there's no hope in the world, and only a false hope in religion, then Jesus Christ must be the only true and lasting hope we have, and that's absolutely right. Because placing your faith in Christ, 
is not a hope based on what you do for God. It's a hope based on what God has done for you. This is a hope that overcomes that selfish heart and creates within us actually a a new heart with new desires. Not to do things for our good, but ultimately to do things for God's glory. It's a hope that leads us to live for something much bigger than ourselves. I want to look at a passage in Romans chapter 4 with you. If you'll turn there, I want us to consider how Paul describes this hope in Christ. And we'll begin in Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. See, Paul begins by emphasizing the same point that Jesus made when he was speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, basically, good works aren't going to get you to heaven. You can boast all day long in all your good deeds, your religious devotion, but there is nothing you can do to earn a righteous standing before God. And then he turns to Abraham as example, and I want you to just think for a second, why Abraham? Why is he the example? Well, one of the reasons is, is because he precedes Moses. And so, if they were putting their hope in Moses and that list of rules that they were to live by, Abraham preceded that. And yet, he went on to say that Abraham was justified, that he was credited righteousness based on faith alone, apart from the law. And there was a specific context in which God made that proclamation, when God said those words, and Paul explains what that is. Look at verse 13. He says, For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. Paul is saying here that that God made Abraham a promise. That he would be the father of a big family. That he would have lots of descendants. And that promise preceded the law so that no one could claim that he deserved that gift from God based on his good deeds. Now look at verse 18. It says, In hope against hope, he, Abraham, believed so that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. That's what God told him. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. That's his wife. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him 
as righteousness. Okay, this is a really important part because it describes where, what Abraham's hope is all about. Paul says, God made Abraham a promise that he would have lots of descendants, that he would be a father of many nations. And yet, at the ripe old age of 100 years old, he and his wife Sarah had not one single child to their name. Verse 19 says that even though Abraham knew that he was well past childbearing years, that his body was as good as dead, and Sarah's womb well past menopause was as good as dead, that somehow he still believed that God would do what was impossible for them to accomplish on their own. In other words, God, or Abraham believed in a God who was immensely bigger than any human impossibility. To the point that he abandoned his own understanding and believed in God's promise. His hope was in God's promised provision. Something yet future that he could not see. And Abraham believed God. And it says that it was credited to him as righteousness. That term credited is an accounting term. It's like when you get your visa bill at the end of each month. It gives you a detailed list of, of transactions, things that you spent money on. And it gives you a total down on the bottom of how much you owe. Well, the Bible says that God took Abraham's bill, that list of, of, of debts, sinful transactions, and He declared His account paid in full. Past, present, future. That's what it means to be credited as righteousness. Now look at verse 23. Now for his, not for His sake only was it written that it was credited to Him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, our sins, and was raised because of our justification. So Paul moves from that illustration of Abraham to the application for us. He says, it's not just for Abraham. Because that very same transaction that took place with Abraham is also being applied to you and I. And here's how. See, like the promise of provision that, that God made to Abraham, He also made a promise of provision for you and I as well. That promise was that the death that Jesus died on the cross was sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. Now, just like Abraham, we too have to come to the understanding that that, that promise is based on something that we can't do on our own. That God's actions somehow exceed our own abilities. That, that that took place because there was no way that I could accomplish it on my own. You remember Abraham said that his body was as good as dead. Well, you and I must recognize that the same is true for us. Apart from Christ, we are dead in sin because we are ruled by a selfish heart. That's what we're born with. 
But God made a provision. And He promised that Jesus' death on the cross did something for us that we could not do on our own. Verse 25 says that He died for our sins and was raised for our justification. That is the heart of the promise. And what that means is that the cross was payment for our sins. And the resurrection was proof that that payment was acceptable in the eyes of God. And if we believe that that promise is true, if we trust in God's provision, God credits His righteousness to us on the basis of faith, just as He did with Abraham. And He looks at our life in that list of transactions, sinful debts that we owe, and He says, paid in full. Past, present, and future. That's one thing to know about that truth. But it really is something entirely different to actually be changed by that truth. Because it would be, do no good. Listen, it's, it's no good for God to just forgive our sins without doing something about our selfish heart. See, that's what makes hope in Christ altogether different than hope in this world or hope in religion. Because only hope in Christ does something about our selfish heart. The, the Bible describes it as taking our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. It's a way of describing how God takes a heart that is ruled by the selfishness of sin and instead creates a heart that is submissive to the Spirit of God so that He shapes and molds us into the people He created us to be in the first place. You see, when we believe in God's provision and what was accomplished by Christ on the cross. We are united with Christ. And just as He was raised from the dead, we who are dead in sin have been raised to live in a new and different life. That is our hope. And even though we do battle with sin, we are no longer slaves to sin because if Christ has set you free... You are free indeed. And we hope in things not yet seen. We anticipate the day that we sang about. When the Lord returns, just as He promised He would. When He establishes a new heaven and a new earth where there is no sin, there is no mourning. And we live in the fellowship of His glory in relationship with Him and all those who claim their faith and trust in that sacrifice made by Jesus Christ. Made alive together with Christ. We have a new and everlasting hope. Our hope is not in this world. It's not in a life of good deeds. See, our hope is a person. Our hope is the resurrected Christ. That's our hope. And our hope is alive. Think about that. Hope in this world is empty. Hope in religion is deceptive. Hope in Christ is the only true and everlasting hope. This morning, I, I don't know if you've got the sense, and I do believe it's not just because there are more people in the room. And although I appreciate the songs, it's not just because of the songs we sang. 
the reason there was life this morning in what we were doing is because we're singing about our hope. It's alive. And we rejoice in what Christ accomplished. That's what we live for. That's what He died for. So today, rejoice in that hope. Know that that's what was accomplished on your behalf. And let's just, as a family of God, praise Him for what He's done. Stand with me and let's close in prayer. Father, thank You so much for not leaving us to ourselves. What a miserable life to live as if this world is at all there is to offer. Or even in religion, because I've been there and I've never felt so guilty and burdened in my life. But yet, You came so that we may have life and have it abundantly. And that's only because of the promise that You made that our sins are forgiven through the sacrifice that You made on the cross. That's Your provision. And when we trust in You and what You've promised to be true, our deadness in sin is made alive in Christ. We are raised to live a new and different life. Indwelled by Your Spirit shaped and conformed into Your image so that everything that we do displays and proclaims the goodness of God, our Creator, to the praise and glory of Your name. So Father, I pray that today we are really a people of hope, that we rejoice in Your goodness, Your mercy, Your grace, and that we proclaim those truths to those around us. Because our hope is not in this world. It's in things yet to come. Things not yet seen, but promised by a good, holy, and righteous God. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Have a great day.